Oh, so, 1 Peter chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the diaspora, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you after that short trip that we had to the Middle East, North Africa region that we've already been thinking about this morning. And it's lovely to be back home today. But I was thinking about you all last week when I was away, and I was watching the uh, meeting last Sunday morning online and loved the word that our brother Jonathan brought. The Lord gave great enablement last week. And we're looking forward to hearing more of Jonathan's ministry. Uh, you know that we have the baptismal service on the 29th of October. And then we have a series, we've planned a series of five Sunday evenings at six o'clock, beginning on the 5th of November. And we're going to be running through a series called, a uh, series in the book of Jonah called When God Says Go and I Say No. What a phenomenal title. I'm quite envious of that title, but we're looking forward to that. And if you find yourself free on a Sunday evening at six o'clock for that series of five, do come along. Then we'll rest it for a while uh, into the Christmas period and into the new year and pick it up again, God willing, in, in January. So we're looking forward to that very much and excited about it. But as I was thinking about you last week, uh, when I was away in Lebanon, actually in Beirut. Um, at one point, I was standing in the conference, standing singing, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom had faced and were facing significant challenges and significant suffering directly or indirectly because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we were doing that on one particular occasion, we sang a phenomenal song by a ministry called City Alight. Some of you will perhaps know that ministry, I think, based in Australia. But it was a particular song called Christ is Mine. Now, I don't know if this uh, PowerPoint is going to work this morning. No, it's died. It's frozen. That's okay. I can preach without PowerPoint. Just. But I can do it. Let's see how we get on. Um, this particular song, Christ is Mine Forevermore, and, and the second verse absolutely stopped me in my tracks because I've been thinking one Peter for weeks now in preparation for this morning. It's just filled my horizon. There it is. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's the second verse, and it's all to do with what one Peter is talking about. We're, we're going to learn this song in the coming weeks. I'm looking forward to doing that. But here's the second verse. Minor tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood, through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good, but mine is peace that flows from heaven, and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Now, as you read and hear that this morning, I don't know if it will mean much to you. Perhaps it's new to you. Perhaps you know it already, but even irrespective of that, just as you hear me talking about this, does that resonate with you at all? I, as we sang that in, in Beirut, and I was thinking about 1 Peter, and I was thinking about the church family here, and 
the picture I had in my mind was of the device that the builders use called a, a telltale. You know, if there's some movement in a building and nobody's really very certain, is the building moving? Is there a crack appearing in an old lintel or something like that? Or in a stairway, such as we might have, if you look carefully. Um, if you try not to fall into it, that would be good. But sometimes they put what they call a telltale, a little device to see if there's any movement. And it's in my mind to use a verse like this as a, as, as a telltale to see if there's movement across this series in 1 Peter in our hearts and lives. Only you will know that. Is there movement towards an understanding of what this verse experiences? I love the words of this song because it's not truculent. It's not impudent. It's not questioning in the midst of sorrow if the Lord knows what's happening in the life of a suffering Christian. It's, it's not wondering, does he know what he's doing? Sometimes in the midst of real seasons of pain, I've known Christians to talk like that, and, and we ought to move away from thinking like that and talking like that. But that's not the way this little verse runs. It expresses the mystery of real and deep pain in the Christian life. And sometimes the things that come into our life are temporary. Sometimes they are permanent. They are gouging experiences a health condition, or a change in circumstances that, that is going to be around for many, many years. And sometimes these things seem so dark and so tortuous that we can't begin to imagine any good in them. Just like the, the verse says, I see no earthly good in this. And we certainly can't see any purpose in them. Now, that is the situation for which 1 Peter was written. It's written by Peter. That's the first very profound thing I'm going to say today and probably the last profound thing I'm going to say. Written by Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he was an eyewitness of his life and ministry, an eyewitness of his death, an eyewitness of his resurrection, one who was among that band of apostles who were uniquely called and qualified at that time to write and speak with the authority of the Lord Jesus. They were commissioned not only for the propagation of the gospel, but for the actual formulation of the gospel. It was a remarkable responsibility to be an apostle. Peter was one of them. Now, this is the Peter who'd been with Jesus. This is the Peter who had had the temerity to rebuke Jesus when the Lord spoke about the necessity of his rejection and suffering and death and resurrection. Peter, do you remember? In Mark chapter 8, took him on one side and said, I don't want to embarrass you in front of the others, but this is crazy talk. Let's have no more of it. It's this Peter. It's this Peter, when he saw that Jesus was determined to go to the cross, who said, even if everyone else turns away, I'll stick by you, but then denied knowing Jesus when the heat was on, when it began to get costly to stand with Jesus. But after Jesus rose from the dead, this Peter, we know, was wonderfully restored and commissioned. He was actually commissioned to feed the flock three times. And that's what he's doing as he wrote this letter. So we can be sure that Peter knows the pressure of life, particularly the pressure of being a friend of Jesus when everyone else hates Jesus and, and has abandoned Jesus. And Peter knows what it's like to buckle under that pressure and to deny Jesus. And he also knows what it is to have, as verse 2 said, as Jonathan read it, to have grace and peace multiplied to him. So he has a lot 
to help us with. And we're going to get going today. I want us to think of two straightforward but essential aspects from these first couple of verses. I thought I was going to get to verse 5. No chance. We're going to get to verse 2. But let's notice, first of all, as we have it there, the readers of this letter. There it is in verse 1. I don't know what's happening here. Am I going the wrong way? I'm sorry. This, I don't think this is going to advance on to the same thing. Right, okay. Shut down. Don't, don't worry about it. Uh, verse 1, have a look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, here's, those, here's his readers, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these locations you would find in an old map, they substantially form what we know as Turkey, or how is it they say it, Turkeyia, or something like that, whatever it is nowadays. And when Peter wrote, his, uh, his readers were in the, the extremes of the Roman Empire, in the regions that are, had hugely diverse populations. Edmund Clowney, in his little commentary, makes the point that Peter's readers were living among people who were a mixture of different origins, different different ethnic roots, different languages that they spoke. They had different customs. They had different religions. They had different political histories. There was, there was no real single cohesive element to unite these cultures. They were extremely multicultural and fragmented. And those to whom Peter is writing, now you can see it, they were exiles, that means that they were strangers in a foreign land. Another way of translating it is aliens. We tend to think of aliens from outer space, but aliens in terms of residents of a land that is not their own. So those to whom Peter was writing, his readers, none of them felt at home where they were. There was no home comfort. There was no sense of belonging. There was nothing that made that a helpful and pleasant experience. And that was part of the pressure that they, that they were facing. And we'll see as we get into chapter 2 that the cultures among whom they were exiled tended to show not, not widespread, severe persecution. That's coming. He warns about that later in the letter. We'll come to that. But at this point... His readers were experiencing localized hostility to Christian believers. That's who he's writing to. Uh, Kathleen Nielsen, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, put it very well when she said that they were scattered, which is a word the NIV uses. You'll see it there in your journal. Scattered and scorned. That's really helpful. Who were his readers? They were those who were scattered and scorned. They were living with hostility. They were longing for home. That's the experience of the exile. Now, this is the experience of the Christian. Supposing the Christian has never even left the town or the city or the country where they were born. This is the classic New Testament definition and experience of what it means to be a Christian. Strange as it may seem, since we often feel so very much at home in this world, believers are actually citizens of heaven. Now, we, we know that. We're hearing the call of the kingdom. We know that we belong elsewhere. But that has implications not only in terms of the wonderful thing we have to look forward to when we're with the Lord, it also has implications for how we feel in this world now. If our citizenship is elsewhere, then where we currently live is not true home. We're exiles here, and we're not going to feel properly at home 
until we're safely in glory. So with the use of that word exile, as you see it there in verse 1, Peter is acknowledging immediately to his readership his awareness of their situation. And I think he's also reminding his readers by using this word exile that they're not the first of God's people to experience this because exile is a word that points us back into the Old Testament. And to, we think of Israel's times in exile and in misery. We think of Psalm 137, beloved of Boney M fans. Nobody know Boney M? If you're under, oh my goodness, that's a bit of a shocking thought. If you're under 50, Google Boney M. They got their words from Psalm 137, not the other way around. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us a song. Our tormentor, tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land or in a strange land? Now some of you have got the tune in your head. But the exiles learned to do exactly that. They learned to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. They learned to live as aliens and strangers in the Old Testament, as exiles. And so must Peter's readers. That's why he uses the word. He's reminding them that they're not, this is not without precedent. This has happened before. So, this is a very great reassurance for them. Exile is the word that points us in this direction. Peter's readers have got to learn how to cope with it, and we have to learn how to cope with being exiles. This book is a mission manual to help us understand the practicalities of living as exiles. Now, that might be going right over your head this morning. You might say, I don't really get that. I don't really feel like that. We'll get there in the book. We'll see more of what this means. It will begin to make sense. You'll begin to maybe retro-apply the status of an exile to your life, when you begin to see some of the practical ways that Peter unpacks this. But they're not just exiles. You'll see here in verse 1 that they are elect exiles. They may be scattered and scorned on earth, but they are selected and secured in heaven. That's quite an address line, isn't it? Imagine this letter arriving in the little assemblies all over what we now call northern Turkey, receiving this letter from the Apostle Peter, and there's the address line. And he's writing to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, scattered. And they're saying, who does he mean when he says elect exiles? Who does he mean? And somebody, one of the elders said, I think he means us. Really? Us? It would have been hugely exciting for them when this letter arrived. Really? We're, we're the elect? I know we're exiles. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but I get that. But what does he mean by we're elect? Yes, Peter wants his readers then and now in HBC this morning, he wants us to know that they as believers are his elect. He wants them to know what he's done for them, what he's doing in them, so that for believers, nothing is as random as it seems. That's a major aim of one Peter. That the difficult times that we go through, that the, the, the grind that we feel in life as we live it, at home in the community or at work or wherever it may be, be just, just wherever we, we may find that grinding experience, that we'll know it's not random. It's not for nothing. It's 
So here he is, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, don't switch off when you hear that verse. Don't lose patience. Don't think, this is like a theological avalanche. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to breathe now. Don't, don't feel like that. Maybe it hadn't occurred to you to feel like that, and I've just put it into your head. <laughs> Peter is pointing out something absolutely staggering and of immense precious value to the Lord's people here. He's writing to ordinary believers. Sisters and brothers, he's writing to folks just like you and me. He's writing to people who, as they assemble with their other Christian friends in exile, as they get together in their little groups, and this letter is read, they have a million other pressures in their lives. They have a million other things going on. They're thinking maybe about family at home uh, in another country. They're wondering, where, are they going to get enough to scrape some food together for dinner tonight? It looks like the boss is going to sack them because they're Christians. They're under immense pressure. And Peter knows that, and yet Peter wants to feed them from the absolute choicest food, theologically speaking. He wants them to understand something glorious, that they are elect. That means that they are sovereignly chosen by God and infinitely precious to Him, and that they are exiles scattered throughout the backwaters of the Roman Empire, utterly scorned by their fellow man. And the mystery is, how can both these things be true at the one time? The lived experience of Peter's readers would have, would have made the fact that they were God's beloved chosen ones at times hard to believe. I mean, come on, he's a sovereign God. How can we be both elect and exiled? How can we be infinitely precious and routinely persecuted? But here in his opening verse, Peter unites these two experiences in the single true identity, identity and experience of his readers and of every Christian. And not only does he tell them that they are, at one and the same time, loved and chosen by God while being loathed and rejected by men, he goes on to point out that this is God's plan for his people. It's, God, it's God's plan for his people that they would be his elect, and it's God's plan for his people that they would be exiles. They are the elect of God, according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that's easy air, easier to see how this list of God's actions there in verse 2 as you look at it in your journal or in your Bible or on the screen, it's easier to see how this amazing action of God in the lives of Christians might apply to the elect side of the equation. And they certainly do. Christians are elect. They are God's chosen ones. They're chosen, we're told here, according to the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God knew in advance those who all the way down through history would hear the gospel and would respond to him because they were a certain type of person. I mean, that would be an amazing thing. 
That'd be amazing for our God to know everything that's going to happen in advance, and he does. And to know those who are going to respond, that would be pretty incredible, but it's even bigger than that. That's not what it means. Elect doesn't mean elite. When we read the word, we've just got to get it crystal clear. Elect does not mean elite. It does not mean God, he knew in advance who the absolute cream of the cream were going to be. And he was going to have them in his eternal family. That's not what this means. It's not that God foresaw something in us that made us the kind of people he would want around him for all eternity. No, he chose us by sheer inexplicable grace. He woke us up to flee from his wrath about which we couldn't have cared less. Now here's a little definition for you. God's foreknowledge is not his ability to discover or discern what's going to happen. Rather, it's his ability to decide and to determine what's going to happen. That's what we mean when we speak of God's foreknowledge. I can only tell you that this morning. I'm struggling to get two verses done in a reasonable amount of time. But the great thing about being a pastor again, God willing, we have lots of Sundays. God willing, we have time to put these jigsaw pieces together so that you're not just hearing this from me and believing it because I say it. You shouldn't believe it because I say it. You should believe it because it's in the Word of God. And through time, we'll be able to see how all of this fits together. But take that as a helpful summary this morning. God's foreknowledge is not his ability to, do, to discover what's going to happen, which would be pretty amazing. But it's so much more than that. It's his ability to determine what's going to happen. There was absolutely nothing in any of us that predisposed us to respond to the Lord and His grace and love in the gospel. But God foreknew us. That means to say, inexplicably, He determined to set His love upon us. He determined that we were going to be His, His chosen one, His elects, to be His people forever. But then in order for that to be able to happen, for us to be in fellowship with Him, it took the brutal suffering of His Son in our place, to pay the penalty of our sin, just as Ali read to us from Colossians at the, the beginning of the meeting this morning. So helpful to do that. And it took the powerful working and the life of His Spirit within us to draw us to Him, to awaken us up, to show us eternal realities, to bring us to know His salvation, and to seal us in Him. And so you can see the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit even in verse 2. A follower of the Lord Jesus is elect by the foreknowledge of God from before the world began and by the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus. And here's, a, here's another Old Testament picture. We don't have time to turn to it, but in Exodus 24, the blessings of the Old Covenant are being confirmed and applied to Israel. And as part of that ceremony, half the blood of the slain auction was, oxen was liberally um, lashed on the side of the altar. That was the place of sacrifice for sins to be dealt with under the old covenant. And the other half of the blood of the oxen that had been slain, that had been sacrificed, was lashed out on the people. Just a big basin of it, just thrown out upon the people. And you weren't trying to dodge it. You were trying to get under it. The picture made it plain that there was a connection between the bloodshed on the altar 
and the blessing that it brought to people whose sin was forgiven, who were brought into a beautiful, new, permanent covenant relationship with God. And so that's why that happened. And Peter uses this Old Testament concept and he applies it to New Testament, New Covenant believers like us. We've not been physically sprinkled with the blood of our Lord Jesus, but by faith that is our experience. We're under his blood. What's the old hymn that has the line, his blood availed for me? Sprinkled by his blood. His death is the basis of our life. And then in the middle of verse 2, his Holy Spirit takes up residence in the lives of those who've trusted in Christ, proving us to be his elect. And he sanctifies us. This is another word that has huge Old Testament origin. It literally means he sets us apart. That's the whole thing about being an exile, being different, being not from here. God has an evangelistic purpose in that. He wants others to see the difference that being foreknown and having Jesus shed his blood for you and having the Holy Spirit working in your life to set you apart, to make you more obedient to the Lord Jesus. He wants people to see the impact that that makes. And we'll see more of that as we go through this letter. So the Holy Spirit literally sets believers apart to live lives of increasingly joyful and effective obedience to the Lord Jesus. So there, he, this is one verse. This is his second verse. He's only still writing his introduction. This is still in the two line. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are active sovereignly to make us God's elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and with sprinkling and for sprinkling with His blood. So as we grow the work of the Holy Spirit in us, as we grow more like the Lord Jesus, still conscious of our sin, we're constantly having the death of Jesus applied to us. It's not just a one-off thing that happened when you first came to Him. You're constantly, brothers and sisters, as you turn back in repentance and faith, you're constantly, in God's purposes, having the blood of His Son sprinkled on you for your cleansing, for your reassurance to reconcile to God. So when the enemy tells you that you can't be, give him this with both barrels. That's why we marvel at our salvation. We praise the Lord from hearts full of wonder at what He's done. Tremendous truth. But as I say, it's, it's easier to see how these things of verse 2 might apply to the elect side of the equation, but Peter wants them to know that they also apply to the exile side of the equation. So let's look at this. Peter wants them to know that not only was God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sovereign over their eternal salvation, also God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is sovereign over their exilic situation. And again, I remind us that God's foreknowledge is not his ability to discover in advance what's going to happen. It's his ability to determine in advance what's going to happen. So Peter's readers were exiles of the dispersion, verse 1. But exiles of the dispersion, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
They were exiles in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So this horrible experience of being an exile, scattered and scorned, was not as random as, it's, as, as these things always seem. God determined and decreed that they would be elect, and God determined and decreed that they would be exiles. And you and me also. And the Holy Spirit was at work in that very context of exile, in those difficult places, to make them more like the Lord Jesus. As exiles. This was God's plan. This is the Holy Spirit's action ground. And as they lived like that, they would have understood more and more the link between their suffering and experience as exiles and the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus for his people on the cross. So, of course, we can see verse 2 applying to the fact that they're elect, but can we also see it applying to the fact that they were exiles? This was God's plan. This is not something that's going horrendously wrong for them. This happened according to God's foreknowledge. This was the arena in which the Holy Spirit was sanctifying them for obedience to Jesus. And as they grew more like the Lord Jesus, they began to see the link with the sprinkling of his blood, with his suffering. And that link is absolutely core to 1 Peter. Our series, is, as you know, is called Following His Steps. That phrase comes directly from, verse, or from chapter 2, verse 21 in the ESV. Let me just give you the context of that. Peter says in verse 19, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, But if you do good and suffer for it, you, if when you do good, you suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here we go, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. These last four words are our series title, but that's where they belong. Jesus made it crystal clear to those who love and follow him in this world that they will suffer and be rejected in this world as they follow a Savior who suffered and was rejected in this world. Life is tough for everyone in a world disordered by sin. But in a sense, it will be particularly tough for those who belong to the Lord because we're exiles here. We're singing the Lord's song in a strange land. But Peter wants us to know that as believers, whatever we face, whatever we go through, it's not random and it's not meaningless and it's not without purpose. God has determined and decreed it. Whatever is in your life today, whether it is a long-term thing or something that has just come upon you, and we're going to have time to unpack how we get the link between can we, can we think of suffering that is not just persecution from the world? Can we think of other things in this context? And I'll show you how we can. But here's the summary of this today. God has determined and decreed it. Not because he hates you. But because he loves you. Because he's doing something that you and I cannot conceive of yet. His son has shed his blood. His spirit is at work in our lives to help us follow in his steps.
So whatever dark seasons we go through, they're not random, they're not meaningless, they're not out with the Lord's control, and they're not going to damage those whose truth is in, whose trust is in the Lord, and who see these connections. Now, very briefly this morning, I move to the, the final thing that I want us to talk about, which is the reason for this letter. Peter's readers would have been acutely aware, as exiles, of their minority. They would have felt tiny in the population. And that's the big shock for evangelical Christians in the UK today, isn't it? We used to have the culture with us. If 20 years ago you were applying for a job, maybe 25 years ago, 30 years ago, you were applying for a job, to mention that you were a member of the church would have been regarded as a really good thing. This is the kind of person we want in our organization. It's the polar opposite of that nowadays. So we're getting a bit of a shock. But what we are coming into in the UK is, is biblical normality. Peter's readers, he's writing for those who feel their minority, who feel their general insignificance. But he writes to tell them that they were right at the heart of God's plan to exalt his son and to bring them with him into infinite eternal joy. That's what his first two verses are doing. And it's stunning to know that, isn't it? So if you're a believer this morning, this is your identity. You're, an, you're elect and you're an exile. And as an exile in this world, your sense of not fitting in, it's a very uncomfortable thing, but your sense of not fitting in, your unacknowledged life, so that you're left out of conversations and invitations and opportunities sometimes, your tiny inaudible voice that you feel just not noticed and not heard, your painful, apparently pointless suffering, can we gather all these things up and say these things have glorious and unparalleled significance and purpose? in spite of every appearance to the contrary. Now, this is a lot to take in. And this will raise a lot of questions, but we're only at the beginning. And Lord willing, he's going to meet us in his word. He's going to, as the old hymn says, he's going to soothe our sorrows and heal our wounds and drive away our fears from 1 Peter. And this is the reason for the letter. And just so that I can top and tail it as we begin, glance at how he closes his letter. Verse 12 of chapter 5. Verse 12 of chapter 5. There it is on the screen for you. By Sylvanus. I went to school with a guy called Silvano Pisano. His dad owned the restaurant at the top of Kemp Street. And Silvano was the only guy, it's the same as Sylvanus, it's the only guy I've ever known of this name. And here is the same name. That was a Totally irrelevant piece of data for you, but always when I see that, I think of big Silvano Pisano. A different, this is obviously a different guy, much earlier. Silvano, same name. A faithful brother as I regard him. I've written briefly to you. So he's written this letter. He sent it by Silvanus. And here's why he's written it. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. His readers might, just like us, have been at times utterly felled by the difficulties that we're facing. And part of what makes suffering more complicated for the believer is that we know these things happen by the foreknowledge and the decree of Almighty God. Painful things in your life and mine. And when we find ourselves reeling under the blows of life that life is inflicting on us, we wonder, huh, why is this happening to me? Is God angry? 
Am I getting this? Am I getting this badly wrong? That these dreadful things have come into my life, that this suffering, that this feeling of not belonging, that this hardship, that this massive pressure has come. Am I doing something wrong that has brought this about? Surely this cannot be the Christian life. Surely it can't be this level of discomfort at times. Have I got it fundamentally wrong, all this Christian life stuff? Surely it ought not to be as difficult as this. And these questions are the reason for the letter. This is the true grace of God. Elect exile. This is the true grace of God. Peter wants to show us what you're experiencing is not unusual. What you're experiencing is not out with the control of Almighty God or Heavenly Father. Brother, sister, be reassured. This is the Christian life. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray together. Father, we long to stand firm in your grace. We long that this season, this autumn, and into the new year, if you spare us, here at Hamilton Baptist on Sunday mornings, as we, as we look at this text, and as we turn to Jonah on a Sunday evening, under, jo- under Jonathan's ministry, we long, Heavenly Father, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. We, we long for peace and grace to be multiplied to us, so that in the times of sorrow and the darkness that we do not understand and through the valleys that we travel where we see no earthly good, we would know peace that flows from heaven and strength in times of need so that we'd know not from a song but from your word that our pain will not be wasted and that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completing your work in us. Grant us to understand these things we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.